for all the, you know, the nice successes you've talked about, I've had plenty of failures. But I always use those as learning. I kind of look at it as a cold shower where it's tough when you're going through it. But when you come out the other side, you're better for it and you appreciate the hot showers a lot more. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. So I, I don't spend a lot of time with regret. I look at it as a learning experience and I move on and I figure out how I grow and do better. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Enjoy. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jubin. Glad to be here. So I start all these things off the exact same way. And my audience tells me that I'm too punitive to myself, but it is the truth that I always mess up my guest backgrounds. So I read my guest backgrounds back to them. I always mess up. When I do, you tell me, don't feel bad about it. And we'll use that as kind of our launching off point. Great. All right. Got your BS in electrical engineering from Purdue. You're a proud Purdue grad. And then you went to IBM. You actually started in marketing, it looks like, for five-ish years. Went to Oracle. Looks like maybe you switched into sales then as a regional manager. You did that for five years. Somewhere along the way, went to Kellogg, got your MBA. Then you went to Tenfold. You're the director of... Tenfold's still around. No, they got sold. Uh, They were part of the Y2K boom to bust and got it sold off for pennies on the dollar. Okay. All right. They're not around. So then you went to Alventive. Yeah. uh, VP of sales for two years, Matrix One. You were started as the director of Central, then you spent some time in Europe, you became the VP of European sales. Um, these are like sequentially one year after the other, VP of American sales for Inovia. I don't know, is that a product of? Matrix One got acquired by Dassault Systems, yep. rebranded Matrix One as Inovia, Yep. but all part of the same family. Yep, okay. Then you became the VP of US sales, this was in 2009. And then you left to uh, Exact Target, and this is when things seemingly got really interesting yeah. for you. 2010, you were the EVP of Global Sales. You did that for two years. Then you became the COO. Uh, you did that for about a year prior to the acquisition by Salesforce in 2013 for 2.6 billion or something. That's right. Um, then you went to Salesforce in 2013 and had a career-changing run, seemingly, uh, eight years there. You joined as the COO of Marketing Cloud in 2013, which I actually think you started about a year into the launch of Marketing Cloud. Is that correct? So so Marketing Cloud was uh, pre-existing when we got acquired. Yeah. They had two other acquisitions, Buddy Media and Radiant 6. And when we got acquired, kind of did a reverse acquisition of those assets into Exact Target rebranded it Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Perfect. So you started as a COO for Marketing Cloud. You did that for five years. Then you became the EVP and COO for the B2C business. You did that for two years. Then you became the president for all of North America sales. You did that for a year. 
And as of August 2021, which is what, a year and a half ago? Almost two years? August 2021, nine months. Holy shit, nine months ago. Yeah. Wow, nine months ago, you started, that's crazy. Less, <laughs> less than nine months. I can't believe, I don't even know. Yeah. Wow, that is insane. All right, uh, as of less than nine months ago, you became the president of field operations for Databricks. You're a board member for a couple places, Session M, Sitecore, and you're currently a board member of 1871. Like, horribly, horribly wrong? How did I, how did I? I, I think it was good. The only, the only tweak is IBM, I know that was right out of school. Marketing rep was their term for sales rep. So I've kind of started my career in sales and uh, haven't looked back. And once I got to Oracle, it's all been enterprise software. And then obviously since SaaS became relevant, it became all SaaS. First job, what was your first job? First time you got a paycheck? First time I got a paycheck, construction. I grew up uh, Joliet, working class town, uh, working class family. And uh, I, I've been working since I was 13. Construction was a big thing in my family, my uncles, my grandparents, my dad, and uh, developed a really strong work ethic at a young age. You're from Chicago. Yes. I lived in Chicago, so let's just get this out of the way. Your favorite restaurant in Chicago. Boy. Actually, let's be more specific. Your favorite steakhouse in Chicago. Gibson's, hands downs, yeah. Have you had Bavette's? Oh, I love (laughs) Bavette's. I just was in Bavette's over the summer of last year, but Gibson's, the energy, the vibe uh, is amazing. But that makes me feel like I'm in a scene from The Goodfellas. <laughs> it does, does it with the dark exactly. the paneling. I, yeah. I used to have a standing, I lived right around the corner on Wells yeah. in Illinois yeah. at a standing weekly at 7.30 with the same exact waiter every Wednesday. I would go to Bavette's and um, a lot of the time I would go with a notebook, I'd go alone and I'd have a glass of wine and... You know, they have the corkage fee where there's yeah, no yeah. corkage yeah. fee, but someone has to pour you a glass of wine. Yeah. Everyone felt so bad for me because they thought I just got dumped or something. Because yeah. who goes to Bavette's alone? <laughs> <I'll find South. laughs> so they would always send me a glass I of wine. It. So anyway, all right. Great um, story. Um, okay, I got more Chicago-specific questions okay. if you'll indulge yeah, me. Yeah, fire away. You are a um, uh, self-proclaimed huge Chicago sports fan. It's in your Twitter bio. It's 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 all over. There's yep. no hiding this yep. thing. Yep. Uh, especially the Cubbies. Yep. In 2016, 2016, they won the World Series, right? Yes. Give me, tell me the truth. Did, did you cry? <laughs> did you cry? I did. <laughs> Believe it or not, game seven, I was there. I went to every home playoff game, every home World Series game but one, and went on the road for two of the series. So I was all in, in Cleveland, game seven, lifetime experience, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget it. It was one of the best sporting experiences I've ever had. Was it a close game? It was, right? It was. Well, it was, you know, we were up, made some, uh, you know, they hit a, a, a two-run homer to kind of tie it up, extra innings, rain delay, uh, thought we were going to lose. It was just the emotional swings in that three-hour period or four-hour period was 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 unbelievable, which kind of captivated the great excitement of the win. Did people stay in the stadium after or did they leave? I was uh, in the stadium till two in the morning. In the stadium? In the stadium. Just partying? Just partying, yeah. It and was it, was, it was packed? It was packed. It was over half Cubs fans. It was absolutely incredible. 
And you're bawling, bawling, oh, drinking. drinking, having a good time. <laughs> the emotions were all over the place. And this runs deep in your family, I have to imagine. Yeah. Like from Chicago, right? The yeah. whole family's from the greater Chicago area. Yeah. So we're diehard sports fans. There's some Sox fans kind of inked in there, but most of us in my family are Cubs fans. My kids are diehard Cubs fans. So I just love being part of that. And we live in the Lakeview neighborhood, which is a about a 12-minute walk to Wrigley Field. So we're kind of in that Wrigley area in Chicago. So very north side. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. Your brother, if I'm not mistaken, is also the, well, I say also, he is the CEO of a pretty good-sized company in Chicago. It's in the water at the house. It is. is. What's going on? Uh, I don't know. It's just, you know, tech is an amazing thing. And being in Chicago, tech is not always, you know, kind of prevalent. Uh, But over the last five or 10 years, you know, there's been a lot of investment. And I've always wanted to stay. I love the city. I love tech. I love software. And, uh, you know, he found a great company where he went and they just sold it last year. And it's it's definitely in the family. We've got a lot of tech people in our the broader Kofoid family, which is awesome. What um kind of a weird question, but like when you were growing up with you and your brother, do you have other siblings? I, there's five of us. Five yeah. of you. Yeah. What was conversation like at the dinner table? What did you guys talk about? You know, a lot of sports. Uh, we we were you know back then when we were growing up, it was in the you know early to mid '80s, and the Bears and the '85 Bears were were all the rage. So anything sports, we all played it. We loved watching it. We were diehard Chicago fans. And the other thing was work. You know, how do you work to save enough money to go to college? That was the game plan for the Klan. And we all kind of figured it out and went to different schools, mostly Big Ten Midwest. And, uh, you know, our parents instilled an incredible work ethic and, uh, you know, work hard, play hard. And that was our upbringing. And it was, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's so cool. Okay, I have unlimited questions. Can I just start yeah, rapid just firing at you? Do. All right. Yeah, go for it. All right, it. let's do it. So, um, number one, when you moved from a sales position at Exact Target to the COO, did all go to market functions then fall under your purview? They did. Yeah. Part of it was we were getting ready to go public. And, you know, think about this was 10 years ago and just coming out of the financial crisis. So there was still a a little bit of caution, you know, in the industry. And uh, our CEO at the time uh, and founder, Scott Dorsey, is, you know, we want to make sure we have the right technology leader, a guy named Scott McCorkle, who's an incredible visionary. And then, you know, me to run all the go-to-market functions and driving, you know, a public company and driving scale. And it was a a very powerful combination that Scott put together and just an incredible story of what exact target accomplished. What was the difference? Like, like up till that point, cause I think about like, so, so maybe give you like a personal example at Kleiner, I thought, you know, I'll join the firm and I'll probably hate venture and I'll go back into one of the portfolio companies and run sales there. And now over two years later, I feel like I know too much. I've seen too much across the portfolio. And I'm like, boy, like the CRO, VP of sales job doesn't quite have the allure that it did, you know, not yeah. too long ago. Yeah. And so sometimes I think, well, maybe the COO thing is interesting, kind of being the conductor of all the go-to-market ships. 
What's the difference? What are the things that you're like, man, I wish I prepped a little bit better making that transition. What are the things where you're like, I was actually pretty well prepared to make that make that jump? Or is the reality it's not that different? Yeah, you know, interesting. And, you know, you think about COOs, they grow up on the go-to-market side. They might grow up on product side. They might grow up with more finance and operations. And obviously, I grew up on the sales side. But you know, a big part of my makeup, not only not only selling, but building, you know, strong operational rigor and excellence. I've always had a good kind of financial mind. So I think I was fortunate to have all those. You know, I think there's a lot of difference in the roles. You know, CRO is very much focused on delivering the result on the number and many things that go around that. COO in that role, I still had accountability on the number, but I was looking more holistically at the life cycle of how do we bring customers into the fold? How do we grow them and how do we make them successful? So I think it was more holistic. There was a lot of overlap between the two, but being a, a COO that came out of the CRO ranks, I still had a very kind of number sales driven kind of viewpoint. That makes total sense. And I think that pattern continues to repeat itself over and over again um, as you look through your, through your career. Random question. Sure. Back to Chicago. Salesforce. So you go, you joined Salesforce and a good time to join the, the company. You came into a pretty serious job through the acquisition. Salesforce in 2018 announced a 500,000 square foot office in Wolf Point Tower in Chicago. That's right. I was thinking, and I know exactly where that office yeah, yeah. is. I've been there. It's really yeah. nice. Beautiful. Um, One of the best locations in the city. Were you, were, I was just thinking, were you involved in that? Like, did you call Mark and say, dude, come on, throw me a bone here. Can we please open a Chicago office? I wish. No, this was, you know, Mark's vision at that time was, you know, to create these towers and all the key hubs. You know, because at the time, pre-COVID, you know, uh, physical office space was a was a representation of your culture. And so the focus of Salesforce was to put a lot of focus into these hubs in, uh, you know, high density areas where you could attract really top talent and you could bring your communities together, customers, partners and employees in these amazing office spaces. And it was a it was a real powerful formula of Salesforce's success. And I think he recognized Chicago being, you know, one of the top seven or eight hubs in the world needs to have a tower. And that's where he made the decision I guess it was probably four years ago, five years ago, to put his beachhead in Chicago. And I think the, the facilities there is going to be amazing. Can you expand on that uh, physical office space being a representation of your culture? Well, you know, you think about the, and, and again, I think in COVID, post-COVID with this work from anywhere, it's different. But in that era, you know, you wanted to create this culture of community, of connection, of giving back, of success of relationship, of trust. And, you know, you want people in the office to be able to feel that, to experience that. And you want the environment of your office and how it's decorated, how it's laid out, how people feel when they come to get a real feel for the culture. And I think that uh, Salesforce and Mark did an incredible job of really bringing that to reality. Very, very powerful. I think it's different and more challenging now because yeah. of the dynamics of what we're dealing with with this work from anywhere. And I think many companies are are having to figure out how do they still have that connective tissue around culture 
and a connection when people aren't coming into the office and seeing each other in person. And I think people are trying to figure that out. Driving around here, I've had so many meetings in my career in a five block radius right. of this office. Van Capital's right there, DocuSign's right next to us. I've been in this office several times. And um, it's a little sad seeing it like this. I don't, I don't know. What's yeah, your- I mean, you know, you, you think about it because I used to come to San Francisco a couple of times a month and the energy, the excitement, the traffic, getting into restaurants, people on the street. And now I come back and I've been coming back since, you know, since I joined Databricks. And, you know, it's the city's just doesn't have the same energy level. There's not people. Restaurants are empty. Hotels are quiet. No one's in the office. And uh, it is, I agree, Jubin, it, it is sad. I don't know what the future holds. I go to New York and there's a lot more energy. Chicago, same way. Um, I don't know if it's something unique to San Francisco, but I think it's what companies are going to have to figure out of how do they bring that energy and that, you know, that engagement for their employees back because it's hard to do over Zoom. It's hard to do remote. And uh, I think you're going to need that, you know, that human connection as you look to scale businesses going forward, just like we did in the past. Yeah. And I think there's an argument, not to get too far down the rabbit hole here, but there's an argument that people make in San Francisco, which is that, oh, it's COVID. But I travel a lot for work still, and I do these things everywhere, and um, it's not this way. No, I agree. It's not. It's only here. It's here. And I think that makes me particularly sad because of the golden goose that was. And you just walk around, and it's, it's, it's a little bit ominous. It's a little bit ominous. Do you think that if you do, you, does Databricks have an office in Chicago? No. So let me let me let's imagine this. If you lived in San Francisco, and you were coming into the office every day, do you think the rest of the organization would follow suit and also come in? I, I think in today's times, I think people are making those decisions on their own, their own comfort level of their family situation and their comfort with what's happening with COVID, who's coming in and who's not. I think. Two years ago, played a big, played a huge part in people coming in. Today, with COVID and all the his, the hysteria and emotion of what what's gone on, I think people are making their own decision on their own. And I think companies are letting them and should yeah. let them. Yeah. I think there's going to come a point, hopefully in the near future, where people, uh, where companies set expectations of we want you back in for a couple of days a week, or we want you to come in for these meetings. Because we want to, you know, we want to have that connection. We want to keep building our culture. And it's an important part of the fabric of who we are. I mean, that's why I was so stubborn about, I said, Andy, here or Chicago, I don't care. We got to do it in person. We got to do it in person. Exactly. I don't care. There's only so much you can get over Zoom, especially a new, I'm a new employee. I came out here or somewhere every week for the first three months Not because I had to, because I wanted to. I wanted to meet the team. I wanted to meet people. I wanted to sit across the table, whether it was one-on-one or small groups, because you have to build relationship. You have to build trust. You have to be able to have conversation. You have to understand the business. A lot of it you can do over Zoom, but that real human connection, I think, has to be done in person. Now, do I think that's going to be like my travel schedule going forward? Maybe not. But as I build and I build credibility and I build relationship, I think that's important part uh, of what I have to do. And not every you know employee has that luxury. Not every company wants you to do that. But Databricks has been incredibly supportive of me and the you know the rest of the team to 
keep building those in-person opportunities in light of what's going on. Yeah. Can you um, maybe go behind the curtain a little bit on the process from Salesforce to Databricks? Like you, you were having a hell of a run. And uh, I just love to know, like, you know, did Ali call you? Like, was it an investor? Did you see the, you know, did you have a glimmer in your eye about this company? I don't know. I just love to know, like, how did it go down? You know, interesting. And if I could tell a story on this, because I think it it has. The stage is yours. The stage is mine. I I thought I was going to end my career at Salesforce. I love the company. They treated me incredibly well, loved what I was doing and the people and kind of all Salesforce stood for. So I wasn't looking, but I knew I had kind of another run in me. I knew I wanted to keep reinventing myself. I think about when I wanted to exact target and how I reinvented myself as a leader. When I decided to stay after year one of after the acquisition and kind of what I went through there. And I said, I want the next thing. And I never was looking, but I always network. And I said, if I wanted to do something different, it had to be in the right space. I love the data and AI space. I think there's something really interesting there. And then it's gotta be the right company, the right opportunity, the right culture, the right product, and the right role where I can make an impact and have purpose. And uh, I first heard about Databricks in November, December of, 2020. So probably, you know, 16, 17 months ago, it was really intriguing because of the growth and the scale. Uh, It went quiet for a while. And then Ali and I finally connected in the spring of 2021. And it was a very slow roll on both sides, kind of feeling each other out. And as I kept peeling the onion back, getting to know the company, getting to know him, what they were all about. By the time it came to decision point, I had such clarity because I'm like, this is destiny. This is what is the next evolution of my leadership opportunity. And Databricks had it. And uh, you know, I'm four months in and I just haven't looked back. And that's not an easy thing to do coming from a company as, as successful and prestigious as Salesforce to walk away from it. It had to be something really, really special. And I found that in Databricks. Uh, you said you had another run in you. How do you know? You know, I get to spend a lot of time with my guests after we record and we go to dinner and whatever. And I'll tell you, like more often than not, the question at some point comes up of Jubin, like, how, how do I get to venture? How do I be an operating partner? How do I advise and not have the weight of a number hanging over my head every month, every quarter, every year? You know, how did you know that there was another run? Yeah, you know, interesting. Having been in the industry a while and kind of going through my experience at Exact Target and Salesforce, the network I was able to establish with venture capital and private equity and understanding those worlds, really fascinating. And at the end of the day, I concluded I like to lead. I like to have connection to people. I like to make impact and purpose. And being an operator is kind of at the core of who I am. And, you know, maybe someday life in the future, I do board work or venture work or what have you. But today I still have the drive, the passion, the competitiveness to be part of helping to build a great company and lead people. And and that's at the core of who I am and what really drives me and motivates me. And uh, it was a, it was a, 
a perfect fit for what I found with Databricks for what I want to do next. It was, I feel very, very fortunate. A, they decided to kind of invest in me and bring me along, but I found a company so impressive as this. Can you talk about reinventing yourself as a leader? You said something really cool, which was that you were excited to do that. And you've done that several times. What does that mean? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I when I when I think of leadership, and it was when I went into Exact Target in 2010, I said I wanted to be a bigger fish in a smaller pond. I'd never been CRO and had a global role. I had, you know, I'd ran Europe at uh, So Systems and ran North America, and then went back to Europe and moved my family and just great experience. And I came back and I said. I really want to take this in a young and up and coming company and figure out how to grow them. And it meant a lot more travel. I had to spend a lot of time in Indianapolis commuting, you know, every week, traveling all over the globe, building this organization, helping the company go public and grow and scale. And it was a a very, very successful outcome. And I learned a lot of things about myself and leadership and scale. And then we got acquired three years later and going into Salesforce and we had a really successful outcome at selling for two and a half billion and went through the first year of transition. It was really, really difficult. And I kind of decided, hey, if I'm going to stay the course, I've got to shed all my bias of how I led in the past and figure out how I optimize my leadership and the growth of Marketing Cloud within Salesforce because they have a system. And I said, for me to do it, I've got to fully kind of put myself into understanding how to scale a business the way Salesforce has done it so successfully and do it for marketing cloud. And that takes reinvention. That takes removing all bias of how you lead, of how you do things, of what you expect, of learning new things. And uh, I'll tell you, I went all in and I learned so much during that tenure from 2014, a year after acquisition, kind of through that journey of learning about scale, learning about growth, learning about people development, learning about culture. And I I felt I really grew as a leader. And kind of during that time around 2018, I said, I wanna take the next phase of what I can become as a leader. And I said, I really need an executive coach. And I started working with this woman, Rachel, And we went through another reinvent of all my values, how I think about leadership, what I want to accomplish professionally, and how do I tear it down and rebuild it and and, and rebuild it to make it better of how do I become, you know, a better leader. And I think that was an important foundation. Maybe I caught a few breaks of Mark calling and, and giving me an opportunity to run North America for Salesforce, which is the biggest job in the company at the time. 70% of the company's revenue. And it was, uh, I kind of had a bit of imposter syndrome to like, can I really do this? Am I really capable? But because I kept reinventing myself and learning new ways and leading with values, you know, it gave me opportunity to, and, and with great people around me, you know, build, you know, tremendous success. And I said, God, when I'm doing that and I'm reinventing, I'm growing, I'm learning, I'm impacting, and I'm, I'm leading with a sense of purpose. And, uh, you know, when the Databricks opportunity came, I said, look, for me to do it, I want to reinvent. I want to, I want to learn. And I want to learn a new space, data and AI, which, you know, I have, I have insight in because of what, you know, Salesforce did and played in the space. 
and it's got a consumption model and it's got you know an incredibly amazing tech visionary in Ali Goetze in a hyper growth scale of a company that's doubling 100% every year. And I said, man, I've learned so much that I think I can help, but I think this company is creating a new segment, a new way of operating that, you know, a lot of the traditional ways of what we've done to scale aren't going to work. So for me to be successful, I've got to come in and learn how to, how to scale where I don't have all the institutional knowledge, that I can't pattern match to figure out the right answers, that it's a very unstructured, complex environment. And how do you lead in that environment? That's very, very different than anything I've done in the past. So that is a complete reinvention of rebuilding yourself as a leader. And I think you do that, you grow, you develop, you learn. And uh, I find it incredibly empowering and inspiring. And I get excited. You can, you can hear it in my voice. I get really, really excited when I do that. And think about it, uh, Jubin. I'm at the later stages of my career. So it's not like I got another 20 years of, of run in me. But I, I think if you have that growth mindset, you know, as a leader, every step of your career, that's where you really optimize for great impact. When you tear it down and rebuild it. That's easier said than done. You gotta really look at yourself in the mirror. What are some of the, let's call it growing pains in that tearing and rebuilding process? Like when muscle is built, you're tearing that muscle and then you're rebuilding it bigger and stronger. I think people are very similar, but like it's hard and there's shitty times along the way. I don't know, as you reflect back, are there times where that tear was felt? Oh, for sure. For, first, you have to have a huge dose of humility. And, and I think generally I do, but there's ego, right? We're all successful. You know, we've done great things. We're working for these amazing companies. And you let that go to your head. It's really hard to figure out how you grow and develop when, you know, you let ego get in the way. And when you're tearing yourself down and you're, you know, part of it, I give my executive coach really helping me figure that out, that now I can kind of self-regulate in a lot of ways. You have to put ego aside and it, it can hurt. And, you know, part of that process is you get feedback from your team, you go through a 360 interviews, you get a lot of very raw and transparent feedback of what you're doing well and what you need to work on. You know, that's very humbling. But I'll tell you, when you do that and you really internalize it, you come out so much stronger the other side. And that was the that was the whole part of the, for me, the reinvention. And once I did it once 10 years ago, I'm like, man, if you really wanna grow and you really wanna become a better leader, you've gotta put yourself in situations where your past experiences don't give you the prediction of what the future will be because you've gotta find different ways to lead, different ways to impact, different skills that you've gotta to bring to the table. I think that's what's been very powerful for me. So let's assume that that re- tearing and building back up is a professional process. What happens like internally, personally? Like what are the things that like w- when you say like you have to take a healthy dose of humility, what does that actually mean? Like what does that feel like? What are the things in your foundation that you have to change in order to prepare yourself to build that house back up again? Like, is there a a different mindset? Do you change your relationship with 
what success even means to you at that point, the way that others might perceive and identify you as a leader. I don't know. Maybe the yeah. question is a little open-ended. No, but. no, I, I, I get it. I think being a leader, you, you look at it so much from a work perspective, but when we kind of did the rebuild of me, go back to my childhood and how I was raised and what was it like and what was I like as a kid? You know, I have a lot of grit and grind in my kind of personality and I talked about the working class and construction and working since I was 13. And, uh, you know, you give me a task or what I have to accomplish and I will, I will dig a ditch until you tell me to stop. And there's a real power in that in, in a career, but there's also a downside because you're, you're, you're using grit and grind to find your sense of worth and happiness. And sometimes those two can collide. So you have to rethink the narratives of how you were raised and kind of what you thought early in your career that may not be relevant anymore. And until you go through that, it gets really hard. And you talked about, you know, how you define success. And I, we talked a lot about worthiness. How do, you, how do you know you're worthy as a leader? Your worthiness is, hey, you get a lot of attaboys from your boss. You know, you went through an IPO. You delivered great numbers. People said you're amazing or whatever it may be. But then when you don't have worthiness because you didn't get the promotion, you didn't get the big job, you didn't get this, you didn't get that, how do you feel? You, you feel like, you know, you, you don't feel really good about it. So you've got to have a really great foundation when you peel it back to what are the core things that are important to you from a value perspective. So we started with that and then started with the definition of how you define success or happiness you know, from a career perspective and how does that interrelate between work and your personal life. And there was a lot of things, you know, kind of deep down that, you know, I had to dig out and figure out to really become, you know, kind of the next generation of leader that I wanted to become. And I'm not there yet, I'm, it's a journey and I'm, you know, super committed to kind of stay the course on it. And uh, it's been a fascinating experience. Do you feel like generally speaking, you're trying to prove something to yourself or to others? And do you think that's changed? Neither. See, I, I feel now that I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I don't have to prove anything to myself. I'm doing this because it's something I enjoy. I get fulfillment out of it. And I feel, you know, a sense of purpose and impact. And I, I think of leadership from a very simple kind of viewpoint. Jubin, it's how do you inspire and empower others to find their purpose and passion? And at the core of it, as a leader, that's what we do. And I think that's what great leaders do. And for me, I want to do the same thing for myself. I want to figure out how I can be inspired, how I can be empowered, that allows me to focus on my values around purpose and passion. Do you think that has changed? Like, do you think you've always had that perspective? Or do you think now, and I've asked this question to other guests before, but like, you know, you're the president of Databricks. And so you don't really have anything to prove anymore. It's not financial anymore. Like you had the option of hanging the cleats up after Salesforce. Do you feel like your perspective has evolved over time? It has for sure. So you say, well, geez, if you weren't as fortunate to find exact target or go into Salesforce or you know, pinch yourself because you're at Databricks, would you still have the same view? And that's back to the worthiness piece. Worthiness should not be tied to your title, to your success, to your bank account, 
to your brand, worthiness should be tied to your your your, your internal happiness of whether what you're getting out of work fulfillment on the home front as a husband, a father, a friend, as a person. And, you know, kind of at the core of, you know, these reinventions, that's where I really got grounded to. And I think once you find that inner self, you just have such clarity and perspective of what's important and how you lead and how you make an impact. You know, I've spent a lot of time over the last 10 years thinking about it, figuring it out, and then really dissecting it via, you know, the executive coach. I think it was always there. It just took prodding to pull it out. And I've had such great leaders I've worked for over the last 12 years, you know, from Scott Dorsey to Keith Block to now Ali Godsey. And they brought such different dimensions to kind of who I am today. But at the core of it, it's you know, I'm, I'm just fortunate. I keep coming back to Rachel, who helped me really find my guiding light and found my kind of true North Star. And it just really grounded me and, uh, you know, allowed me to help figure out how I can drive my own reinvention. It's funny. Um, I used to live and die by my career. And so then you take that even a step further. It's like that means you live and die by the deals and your quota and your number and all these things. And then I got to, to Kleiner and I was treated differently. I could get meetings that I otherwise couldn't get because of the email address that I had. I was now getting, you know, talking to whatever CIO or CRO or whatever that I wanted. And I was flying in nice things and staying in nice places. And, you know, my mother was proud of me and all these things. And it started like when I joined, I, it started to kind of eat away at me. Because I got really insecure that, boy, how could I ever go back to, you know, some random startup that no one's ever heard of where I don't get treated this way? And as I started to ask myself why I feel that way, I realized that who I was was way too inextricably attached to what I do. And when those two things constantly are on top of each other, it's really scary. Like, and, and, and even in, in San Francisco, whenever I come back here... I always realize, like, when I meet people here, it's very different than Chicago. When I meet people here, one of the first questions that I get asked is, what do you do? And I hate that because immediately they're trying to identify you through your job. And I think when I've lived in this bubble for so long, it took me leaving to realize that, like, boy, are those two things different. Does that make sense? It it sure does. You know, it's interesting when... when, uh you know, those comments. I mean, like being in Chicago, I can be very anonymous. Now, the tech scene has gotten bigger and, you know, with Exact Target and Salesforce, people knew where I worked. But, you know, people would ask, what do you do? I'm in sales. And and that's all I'll say, because I don't want my identity tied to what I do on the work front. I'm super proud of what I do and where I work. But, you know, the worthiness is who, I'm, who I am as a person. And I think if you have that grounding, you don't let all of that other nonsense distract you. And you, you think about the example of the brand and who you work for. I mean, I worked for, I think, conceivably one of the best, if not the best software company in the world with one of the best brands in tech being Salesforce. And there was a, a point in time during that reinvention of, 
I remember being challenged, you know, via my coach, you know, are you at Salesforce because you really love it or because you feel an identity that protects your worthiness? And, you know, after we dissected it, it was, it was, I was there because I loved it, but there was a, a worthiness because it was this amazing company. As a coat of armor. Exactly. And then you think, well, I know I want to do one more. I, I, I want to help make a big impact in another company. And, and Databricks has an incredible brand. It's getting bigger every day. But you go to this company that most people may not have heard of in Chicago in a smaller company, uh, you know, not as a, in, in a visible a job. Why would you do that? Well, I'm not doing it for the worthiness piece. I'm doing it because it's an amazing market. It's an incredible company. I think Databricks is gonna change the world and an opportunity to make a huge impact with an incredible purpose in this company. You, you kind of take all those decisions aside of having that coat of armor protect you. And you know that's part of the reinvention. Were you nervous? Um, I, let me qualify the question. You stepped into this company the valuation, as you were stepping in, uh, ramped up to $38 billion, most recently raised $1.6 billion in August of 2021. It's one of the darlings of Silicon Valley right now. Ali has publicly said, like, we're going like, to go public. We haven't set a timeline, but that's happening. It's going to be a big one. It's going to be quite a serious event, you know, backed by all the name your financial institutions, Salesforce Ventures included. It's raised $3.6 billion a day. It's on pace to generate a billion or more in 2022, growing to your point, like almost 100% year over year, just doubling. Like you walked into this monster of a company. I guess I, I don't know how else to ask. Like, were you nervous? Like, did you walk in? I asked Mike Clayville the same question. It came from AWS. To Stripe. And yeah. to Stripe. And he joined, you know, probably a year ago, you know, I don't know, maybe less than two. And I'm like, Mike, you just joined Stripe. <laughs> you know, like, like I don't know. I, I guess you could really improve this place, but boy, there's a long way down too. I, I don't know. How do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, I, I, you know, a couple thoughts. You know, first, was I nervous when I made the decision to leave Salesforce to come here? And, and you know, kind of back to the, I had such clarity because I knew what was important to me and the decision I was making. I didn't waver for a minute. Not because Salesforce is an incredibly amazing company, but Databricks was the next chapter of, of for me. And I didn't, I had such conviction and clarity. When I have clarity, decisions are easy for me. And it wasn't even a decision, it was a, it was a natural evolution. Now that I'm here four months, seeing this company and all the things you rattled off, and I obviously knew it coming in, it is, I, you know, I've told the team this within Databricks. This company has the opportunity. It's it still you know has a long journey to go because it's you know got to keep driving scale to to be one of the greatest software companies of all time. We we have it with an incredible tech visionary. Our products are amazing. The market opportunity is massive. This company has incredible people, and it's an execution machine. So. I continue to be so impressed. And think about it, all of the co-founders in this company are all PhDs. You know, 10 All from Berkeley. All from Berkeley, 10 times smarter than me. And I, I've kind of concluded I'm not the smartest one in the room. I know where my value is. I know how I'm gonna make impact. I've got a lot to learn. I'm a slow burn and I'm slowly figuring out where I can make an impact, where I can make a difference and how do I get my feet planted. 
And uh, I, I'm in an incredibly good place, but I'm surrounded by amazing leadership and people that work with me. So uh, I'm super excited by the journey ahead. Uh, uh, what do you mean you're a slow burn? Well, meaning I, I, uh, I, I'm a slow burn where I, I ask a lot of questions, I listen, and I don't form judgments too quickly. Because I want to, you know, what we did at Salesforce or what we did at Exact Target, this is part of the reinvention, is it's not cookie cutter to bring in to Databricks. We're a completely different business. We're a consumption model. We're selling different technology. The pace of innovation is very different. The growth is three times, you know, kind of the industry norm. So you have to understand how this place works, what makes it successful before you start saying, hey, we've got to do X or Y. And that's where I'm spending a lot of time asking questions, a lot of time listening before I say, hey, you know, we need to do X or Y to keep this thing growing or to do things differently. So yep. uh, that makes sense. Uh, can I read you a quote? For sure. It's from Ali, your CEO. And um, this was in context of bringing you on board. He said, with more than three decades of experience building, scaling, and transforming high-growth software and cloud businesses, Andy's track record of category creation and operational excellence will provide invaluable as Databricks' Lakehouse platform becomes the data architecture of choice for data-driven organizations. One of the things that is all too common that I've seen is trying to hire the executive out of Snowflake to come to Databricks or out of name your AI or data company to come to this company. And you talked a lot about like reinventing yourself in that process, learning about a consumption model, learning about AI. Usually those are knocks against the potential candidate. You know, in that process, were they asking you questions about data architecture and data lake houses and data warehouses? How did you get over the industry domain hurdle? and convince them that this you were the right fit, or does it not matter? We look at it at the people, you know, we hire today, because, you know, raise the bar is one of our core foundations of our, of our culture, which is how do we bring in the best talent? And, you know, I, I've made this observation to others, because when, when I went through the interview process, I interviewed with most of the board and the e-staff and super impressive people. But when you get in, you're like, well, what's it going to be like down in the trenches? And I shared this at one of the last board meetings. I, I continue to be so impressed with the caliber of talent within this organization that it, it you know, in some ways blows me away because we're, we're small, we're young, we're pre-IPO, that it's not always easy to attract talent, especially in this hyper-competitive market. And Databricks Foundation of Raise the Bar and how we go through the, you know, the hiring process, I see why we have such great people and why this company executes so well. But you take it a step further and you think about the criteria. You want all of those things around leadership, around culture, around scale. And the icing on the cake is someone who understands data and AI. And I'll, I'll have to defer to Ali and others of they knew I didn't have deep data and AI experience. I understood enterprise software for sure. And uh, you know, my guess is they felt the scale piece, the culture piece, the leadership piece 
compensated for the lack of you know insight and knowledge on data and AI. I will tell you four months in, I'll never be you know like our co-founders and some of the people I work with as far as knowledge on data and AI. But it's a fascinating industry, and and I generally get it. But I'm looking at it through the lens of strategy, business, go to market, alignment, execution. And I'm not saying it's irrelevant because you have to understand the industry and have to understand competition. Uh, but a lot of the things that we are doing here, you know, were important things that we did at Exact Target or Salesforce when we drive scale, we drive alignment, we drive operational excellence. All of those things, I think, translate even to a company like this. What do you think were some of the hardest, most thoughtful questions they asked you in the interview process? I'm just super curious and inquisitive. So I probably interviewed them as much as they interviewed me in questions. And we kind of <laughs> joke about it, but they go super deep. It's like, you know, your pedigree, great, that got you in the door, but let's go deep of how you drove scale. How do you hire? And then the, the thing that was really interesting, which I had never done before, they have this process when they bring new people in, a 3612 which it's your plan for three, six, 12 months. But basically you put a presentation together, they put together a set of questions that they're gonna wanna go deep on, and you basically build a deck towards these questions. And there's, I think there were probably eight to 10 people, it was all execs on my call that basically grilled me for an hour and a half. A lot of it they covered before, but they just wanted to go deep, see how I react, asking me tough questions making me feel and somewhat uncomfortable because they would challenge. And it was a, a lot of time to prep for it, but it really gave me great insight of what it would be like working here. And also they got great insight into how I would show up, how I would interact, how I would debate, very much a debate culture. And I'll tell you, going through the process, now I see why Databricks has been so successful at you know, bringing in great talent and raising the bar. When you're asking them questions and your curiosity is running wild and you're interviewing them, are there any questions that stand out to you that when you got the answer helped you find the clarity that you ultimately then then had? Part of it is just that maybe it's a stage of my career or kind of what I was looking for. I was looking for market first. I really wanted to understand the market and the market dynamics. Because I think you can find a great company in an average market, it's in an average market. If you can find a great company in an amazing market, you can light the world on fire. And I had enough instinct on data and AI, so I spent a lot of time, especially with Ali and and you know the head of development and some of the other e-staff members, really trying to understand the data and AI space of where it was going. And, and again, I wasn't looking at it from a technical angle because I, I don't have that depth, but from a business opportunity standpoint, and then trying to understand Databricks strategy of how it was gonna play, how it was gonna win the market. Because part of this is you find the right market with this huge opportunity, huge TAM, no clear market leader, but finding somebody that can be the number one or two player that has the right product, that has the right vision, that has the right people, that has the right culture, and has the right execution. So all the questions were peeling back the onion to figure out those things. And you know, the more I got into it, clarity was there, and it was a foregone conclusion. 
I'm coming. There is a woman who I chatted with before this, who used to work for you. Her name is Stephanie. And um, she just came onto your team and at Marketing Cloud in Salesforce. I'm going to butcher the story, but she'd never done B2C or something, something along. Do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. I reached out and I said, hey, she listens to the show. And, and I said, are there any stories about Andy that elucidate his leadership style? And um, she said she was really nervous about coming into a world that she didn't really know the product and the technology that well, you know? She didn't understand it like she did before. She said that you gave her two pieces of advice. The first is that you said, we're all customers. So if I put myself in the shoes of the customer, I should be able to talk to any CMO. That was number one. Number two was to continue to focus on my leadership framework and the product and technology pieces would just fall in place over time. And as she was relaying that advice that you gave her to me, all I could do is just think about you in the exact same boat, probably five years later. I don't know. Kind of crazy, right? It really is. And I, I remember the conversation and I she's done incredibly well within, you know, still at Salesforce and Marketing Cloud. I, I think a lot of that guidance and advice still resonates. As I say, I practice what I preach. So from a people development standpoint and leadership development standpoint, as I say, I I give the same advice or counsel or guidance or perspective to others as I do for myself. And that's been a, fortunately, a very powerful thing for me to keep growing and developing, you know, in addition to some of the other things we talked about. Mark Wayland, you know Mark? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, great leader. And he's doing a great job at Box, Box right now. Yeah, absolutely. He's doing a really good job. Who I've had on, um, and we've gotten to know each other over time. He, he said two things. One, and this is consistent and universal feedback that I got about you, and it's, it's really obvious sitting across the table from you now, is your operational excellence and rigor. I think that's the, probably the primary reason that, that you were hired here. The second, he said, in addition to having massive leadership roles, He's a very involved family guy, and I'd love to hear more about that. And some of the dots that I started connecting years ago on Twitter, you posted a picture of a note from United as a global services member thanking you for the frequency of your travel. And as I started to reflect on what Mark had said, and I started to learn more about you, and I listened to you talk about the conversations at the dinner table and the, the lineage of Chicago sports that runs through your veins. And then counterbalancing that with working always for Bay Area-based companies, being in Chicago, global services is, is earned, not that's, given. That's right. That's for sure. <laughs> How do you create that balance? You think you've gotten better over time? Any tips and tricks, things that you think about? Um, I think there's a lot of people, myself included, that charge really hard at our careers, sometimes at the sacrifice of, of our personal lives. Just to have context, I just hit 30 years of, of marriage to my wife, Monique, so super Congrats. proud of that. Uh, we were, I guess, college sweethearts. Uh, three kids, so a daughter who's be 25 this year, uh, lives in New York working, and then two boys. Went to Michigan? Uh, she went to Michigan and uh, works in consulting. And then two boys, junior and sophomore in college, so 21 and 20 uh, at Purdue and Illinois. And, uh, you know, just couldn't be prouder of my kids. 
and you think about what we do and travel and just for context global services you know over the last 20 years 2.2 million miles so you know you kind of do the math that's a lot of that's a lot of trips and that doesn't count the countless times I drove down to Indianapolis working at exact target because it's a three-hour drive and being away for three days a week. What do you think that is, like two, like 150, 200 days a year on the road? Yeah, well, pro- probably 100 days. Yeah. Yeah. 100, yeah, maybe 150, somewhere in that range. Yep. So, you know, part of it is, I think, a couple of things, always knowing your priorities. And I, I've always been a family first. At the end of the day, I love what I do. But work is not my identity you know me as a person is my identity it's kind of back to all this that we talked about earlier and knowing that at the end of the day you know this all ends and it's how you were as a father as a husband as a friend as a person is what people are going to remember you as regardless of whether you were you know some super powerful executive or you know individual contributor ae it doesn't matter you chose different paths, but because you were a president or a CEO doesn't make you a better person than someone that wasn't. So being grounded at uh, what really matters. I think that's that's always been, you know, and I, I give my parents and my, my, my upbringing is an important foundation of that. You know, secondly is, you know, really trying to Uh, make that personal and business life very fluid. Uh, You know, sometimes I would have to compromise and not be around during the week and be all in on the weekends during kids' activities or going out with my wife or being with friends. And, you know, other times I would have to not be able to do something on the work front because, you know, whether it was a kid or a family priority took, uh, you know, made me have to miss some work things. So I always balanced that. I always kept things in check. I kind of regrounded quickly. And, you know, I played the long game. Um, there's times where in a new company, you're, especially Exact Target, when I started, I remember the first six months, I mean, it was nonstop. It's nonstop at Databricks. And it will probably nonstop at Databricks for a long time. Now, my kids are at a different age where I'm able to do this. Um, and, you know, my wife and I have a great relationship, but I, I just found balance and I found peace. And, you know, there were tensions at point that I created because I didn't feel I was doing enough on the home front or doing enough at work. But I think going through all of this leader and worthiness and identity, I was able to find peace and balance of loving my career, traveling, working, giving it all while still staying grounded, you know, on the home front and knowing my identity as a husband, father, and friend. This is a weird question, but does pressure, uh, is it proportionally correlated to responsibility? Like when you have 70% of Salesforce's revenue under your purview, when you're running Databricks, driving it public, you know, with expectations of a huge, huge business. I don't know. Go ahead. I, I you know, for, for me and, it, you know, part of it could be, you know, having been through it before and I wasn't, you know, look. Not that I have all the answers, I don't, but you have such confidence in your foundation of who you are and what you're doing. You're around a great team. You have instinct. You're you're leading with your values. Yes, there's pressure in numbers and pressure in results. And, you know, I've had plenty of sleepless nights and have worked for very demanding leaders. 
and I, I, I don't know. I, for some reason, I've always, Jubin, I've always thrived in high pressure situations because if I didn't, I wouldn't have come here because this is, <laughs> you know, is intense uh, and competitive as I've ever seen. And I couldn't be in a better place. And I, I would say the same thing at Salesforce because, you know, taking over the president job when I did, you know, I tell the story, you know, I got promoted into the job. It was first of March of 2020. And two days later, they closed the office and are like, you got to lead, you know, 10,000 people remotely through this pandemic that no one really understood and, and did. And, and, and you know, it, it made you test leadership skills you knew you never had. So I think the right kind of pressure, the right kind of balance, I've always been able to thrive in it. I'm, I'm incredibly competitive. You don't see it on overtly because my personality and style is not rah-rah, but internally the fire is burning super bright. And uh, that's always worked for me. The other theme that I hear about Andy is just consistency, steady Eddie, never too high, never too low. I get it. I get it. Has it always been that way? I'm certainly not that way. So maybe I'm selfishly (laughs) asking, um, you know, I I feel everything viscerally and I've certainly never managed a 10,000 person org where every step that I take is, is inspected in the way that I'm sure yours have been and are. Is it cultivated? Is it natural? Do you practice it? Tell me more. Yeah, I, I, uh, you know, the steady piece has always been part of my demeanor. Yeah, uh, part of part of my DNA and who I am. I think you know, from a leadership perspective, that that calmness, that rock, that stability, I, I try to bring that to myself because that's where I feel like I, I optimize. And trust me, I get pissed off. I get mad. I can get emotional, but I find when I'm at my best is when I have clarity on looking at kind of the full picture and making decisions that way. And, you know, in some ways it can be unemotional, it can be very balanced. So I find that I operate best when I'm in that environment. And I find that I get the best out of people is when I have a calm, clear, concise conviction demeanor of where we need to go and what we need to do. I think people can resonate, they can understand. Can I amp it up and show emotion for sure? But I think, you know, in time of crisis, in time of high growth, in time of scale, people wanna know the future. They wanna know that someone, and I'm not saying it's me, but someone is gonna help lead them through this rockiness, through this uncertainty, through this difficult time that they trust, they respect, that is gonna be able to get them through it. And I'm not saying I'm always that person, but I find that leadership style really works well in the volatile, high growth, ever-changing environment in the world in which you and I live. I think there's something to be said for things are never as good as they seem and really never as bad as they seem. For sure. Okay, I got to get you out of here in, in a minute, but I have a few more yeah, things that away. I want to touch on. You said, like, trust me, I've had sleepless nights. I want to, like, revisit that. Yeah. Um, why? Like, what, what are some of the, the, the shining examples in your mind? Shining is a really bad word for a sleepless night, but which ones stand out to you and why? You know, I, I think it's when, you know, my leadership 
when I know I didn't give my best performance and I didn't deliver. And uh, I, I let, not intentionally, but I let the company down, I let somebody down, and I know it. That bothers me because back to that grit and grind, back to that, you know, that performance, that competitive, that conviction, you want to do well and I'm driven that way. I've always been wired that way. Um, so that that's one. And you look, for all the, you know, the nice successes you've talked about, I've had plenty of failures. But I always use those as learning. I kind of look at it as a cold shower where it's tough when you're going through it. But when you come out the other side, you're better for it. And you appreciate the hot showers a lot more. And I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. So I, I don't spend a lot of time with regret. I look at it as a learning experience and I move on and I figure out how I grow and do better. So that's kind of one aspect. You know, I think the second is when I'm dealing with, you know, tough situations, whether it's a personnel, leadership, performance, you know, hitting a number where we're not performing to where we should be. And, uh, how do I figure it out? And it's not a quick answer. It's not a quick fix because I feel accountable, you know, back to that, that internal fire is burning really well. That internal fire wants to perform and wants to deliver. And when it doesn't, it can exasperate itself in different ways. And my way is sleepless nights. I'm honestly a little surprised to hear the, like, what, like at what point in your career, I'm like looking at your resume right now, was the business not performing? Well, you know, it could be a given quarter. It could be a given month. It could be losing a big deal. Yeah. So when you look at it at a macro level, looking back on 30 years and generally great numbers, there's pockets in a given quarter and a given month where the numbers, I mean, look, when we got acquired into Salesforce and marketing cloud and, you know, we went through different evolutions and maturity, it wasn't always rosy. We had to reinvent the business. We had huge competitive pressures, uh, you know, might have market product execution sales issues that on a given quarter may have not, may have not delivered the best results, but we we figured out how to get through it and overcame it. And now you look back on it and exact targets viewed as one of the, you know, the best acquisitions in Salesforce history. Uh, so you look back on it, say amazing, but when you're in it and when I was going through it, not every month or every quarter, it took a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get there. Can, and you don't have to answer this, okay? but you said like you would, and, and I'll paraphrase, but you'd beat yourself up when you didn't bring your A game. Like that's one of those sleepless nights. Any that stand out to you? Yeah, you know, there, there's probably so many, but one in particular, it was probably four years ago when I was running B2C, we were trying to w uh, win a big account, you know, in the consumer space, high visibility on their side, on our side, and uh, it's super complex deal. I was right in the middle of it, had maybe some people issues on our side that I could have addressed sooner, some execution issues. And you know the end result is we didn't have a good outcome, and uh, it really teed me off. Uh, I felt accountable. I was angry. I was mad. I was frustrated. But I learned a lot through it, and uh, it shaped a lot about how I execute now going forward. Um, but you know that one was very painful on many fronts because you know all the way to the you know the CEO on our side full visibility, full accountability, and you didn't deliver. 
on their side on, on your our, side on our oh, side. mark yeah 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 can i keep going on this i, I got <laughs> sure. i got another question sure. for Go you for it i actually uh last week probably had one of the shittiest days professionally okay certainly at kleiner okay it was shit it was a bad day. Like one of those things where probably four things happened on the same day where any given one of them would really like it would hurt uh, pretty bad. And I remember calling a friend and just saying like, man, on your worst days, how can my recovery period be as short as possible? Because this wound is wide open right now and it really hurts. And this is, I can't even believe it. I just went to the bar. I just went straight to the bar <laughs> I, and I ordered a martini and thankfully it was bowling night with the bowling team. And so we got to let loose a little bit. And by the morning I was excited to attack the problems with vigor again, but it probably took six hours. And during those six hours, I was, I was struggling to find a way to bounce back and it hurts. Like that was a time to our earlier conversation where all of my identity was hurt, like all of me, because I felt like I was failing the firm and the company. And we had relationships that were standing for 40 years that I felt like I was jeopardizing and I'm responsible for. And I couldn't let that happen. And I told him, I came back the next day or two days later and I said, I'd rather quit than not see this through. We're going to fix this. But it took me a long time to regain my mojo because it hurt so bad. And it didn't hurt Jubin as a professional. It hurt him as a person. And I feel like my identity is actually now much more wrapped up in my losses than it is. Like, I don't get too high when things go really well as, as a person. But boy, do I feel them as a competitor when I lose. So maybe this is an incredibly long-winded way of me asking, like on those days, how do you rebound? Yeah, I, I, first of all, it's impressive that you're able to recover so quickly. Um, I had to work, you know, it, it used to take me days or weeks where, you know, second guessing, regret, super bummed out, you know, you kind of wear your emotion on your sleeve. You know, as much as that calm demeanor I have, you know, in situations like I described earlier, it, it, it took a toll. And, you know, part of what I learned as I continue to grow and develop as a leader, where you, you've got to have a short memory, where you've got to let those things go. You got to take the good away of what you should have done differently. Don't dwell on it because you can't change the past and focus on how you change the future. And, you know, think about scale running a big business and all the decisions you're making and, and missteps along the way. You don't have time in an environment like Databricks where we're doubling every year. You don't have time to dwell for six hours, for a day, for a week on a misstep. Yeah, you effed up, you fix it, you learn from it, and you move forward and you figure out how you make it better next time. And you just you just have to have just conviction on how you're moving forward and and it's it's a for me it was a learned muscle because I, I didn't have it for the longest time I wish I would have because I probably wasted away many days and nights being down and out mad at myself bummed out instead of picking myself up and moving on quickly just like you did yeah and I think as leaders in complex environments in an unstructured world you know, you think about what we're doing at Databricks. We're creating a new market, a new segment, a new way of operating 
consumption model, so many things that haven't ever been done before. There is no playbook. So there's a lot of mistakes along the way that I'm already experiencing, not the company's making, that I'm making. And I have to kind of look forward every day to get smarter and smarter to figure this out. There is no time to second guess. The foundation of mistake drives a future performance. That's a hell of a place for us to leave it. I wrap all these things the same way. Uh, the first is, um, and I think it's really the only question that I let you prep for, uh, <laughs> what does the word grit mean to you? Grit for me means a, a conviction and grind to, to know where you want to go and to every day you drive day in and day out to achieve that, that objective and you let nothing get in your way. Nothing gets in your way. And I think that is, you know, for me, and I've had grit, you know, in my vernacular since I was a kid, is an important part of who I am. And I think an important part of what makes great leaders over time. Well, dude, I can't wait to see what you do here. Uh, I'll be cheering from the sidelines. Are you hiring? Let's assume that you're hiring for basically everything in the go-to-market org as companies that grow 100% year over year do. Are there any key roles that you would like to shout out? And if so, what would be the best way to get a hold of you? Yeah, so we're hiring like crazy. You know, we're nearly doubling our go to market organization going into next year. Every role, Jubin, you can think of. And I think for people, you know, and hopefully if you've listened, an incredibly exciting market, a company that will be the market leader a company that I think could be the best software company in the world in the next five to 10 years, and an opportunity to, to create a playbook that's never been done before in a culture, in an environment that's super challenging, competitive, exciting, uh, amazing, that you can be part of and create a journey like you've never had before. And I think people that wanna do that, go to our website, all of our jobs are posted and, uh, I talked about raising the bar. We we have amazing people and we need many more to keep this uh, tremendous growth going and, and help win the data and AI space. So I appreciate this opportunity and uh, love the discussion, Jubin. Andy, thank you. All right, I appreciate it. Thanks again. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.